Hi, you guys. Hey, I have a question. So that's so my daughter. She's 19. She starts everything with mom. I have a question. I'm like, just ask the question. Okay. Anyway, have you ever been truly inspired by someone literally juiced into action after, I don't know, hearing someone speak for a short period of time and just hearing their story? My next guest was in graduate school toiling away when a young entrepreneur made a speech about his brand new e-commerce store and how he was planning to, you know, make all these things. Like, oh, I'm going to change the world, right? He said he was going to change the world by simply selling books online. Now, the internet was really new. Okay, you know where this is going, right? That speaker, Jeff Bezos of Amazon. Well, my next guest is an equally admirable entrepreneur today who back then heard Bezos's words about e-commerce before it was popular and said, I'm, I'm going to do that. I have a different area I want to transform, the beauty and makeup industry. And boy, has she done just that. Marla Beck has been a beauty and makeup fanatic from day one, right? I mean, but always found it kind of intimidating to walk into a department store. I mean, they're coming at you with, oh, try this, try that, or stuff's too expensive. Listen, at the time back then, you could only buy makeup from department stores or from a drugstore. So in 1999, she decided to change that. She launched Blue Mercury with her now husband, Barry, as an online shopping hub for all things luxury beauty. But that is only the beginning of the story. Fast forward 20 years, and they now have more than 200 locations, hundreds and hundreds of brands of makeup and beauty products. So what is the secret to how Blue Mercury grew from nothing? Well, we've got Marla Beck here right now. Marla, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Thank you, Liz, for having me on the show. Oh, listen, we're, we're thrilled. And this is just an amazing story because uh, who among us hasn't seen a Blue Mercury store, walked in and been blown away by all the choices and thinking, wait, there's so many makeup stores and, and chains out there. I mean, you think about Mac and all these other ones and you dove in there, but let me take you back to that pivotal moment. What was it like? sitting there and listening to Jeff Bezos, who at the time was not really anybody most people had heard of, speak to you. What was it that you heard that changed your track and your world? I think for me, it was like a new door to the universe opened. So back in 97, when I was listening to him speak, um, we had just gotten our first email addresses. Uh, we didn't have Google, so the internet was a brand new thing. And he was talking about a future and a world that was almost unimaginable, but he was so determined that he was going to make this future world happen. So he was explaining e-commerce and what it was to us. If you, if you go back in time and even look at the first Amazon site, it was just like a bunch of words and, and you know, some buttons. And so this concept, this idea that you could go online and just hit a button and a book would come to your house was revolutionary. And so I think I was just completely intrigued by the way he presented the future. And I say this to all sort of students or, you know, students of life, you know, go listen to speakers, you know, watch Zoom chats, you know, see as much as you can, because you will have an idea that you never even thought you had. So I was sitting in the audience, I, I didn't really do anything 
about sort of this new door um, for a while um, because I don't think I had an idea and I, I didn't completely conceive of myself as an entrepreneur, honestly. I'd gone back to graduate school. I'd been in consulting and thought I would go back to consulting. And it wasn't until a mentor of mine said, I see you as an entrepreneur. Please don't go back to what you were doing. You're young. Try mm. something new. Uh, with the time that you have right now where you have no obligations, right? No kids, you know, I had student loans, but, you know, I could figure out the payments. Uh, You could delay payments back then, but I really had no obligations. And so I really took that to heart and didn't really act on the idea of me being an entrepreneur until after I graduated from grad school. But yet, that's my cat, always interrupting, yet you were in a very established company, McKinsey. You were working there. Then you went and worked in private equity. Give me this no-name or unknown person who said to you, please don't go back to your old job. That, to me, is also interesting beyond the Bezos Act. So um, it's a gentleman named Dick Darman. He was um, a managing director at the Carlyle Group, major private equity firm, but he would also happen to be a professor at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. And mm-hmm. I was a joint degree at the Kennedy School of Government and the business school uh, up at Harvard. And um, I was in his class. It was a really small class. It was only 12 people. So he really got to know his students well. Uh, And he had worked at McKinsey and been in private equity and I think coached a lot of young students over the years. And so I I think it was just that, you know, coffee I had with him that he saw me and presented, um, you know, a different perspective on what the path could be than the one I knew. And so I do try to do that with young people. Now, when I talk to them, try to present them new paths and help them see themselves better. Um, but he, he did that for me mm-hmm. and he actually showed me that it wasn't as risky as I thought. Right. Um, I had a nice safe job, which felt great since my dad hadn't gone to college. He was an entrepreneur um, and really a hard scrabble entrepreneur back when, you know, there were good times and bad times. Um, And so we all felt good that I had such a safe job. But I guess my roots took me back to being an entrepreneur and this idea that you could manage the risk around trying something new, I think, was incredibly helpful. And over the years, um, you know, he was one of the first investors in Blue Mercury. Um, and really supported us in the journey. Well, that makes a huge difference, certainly. And, uh, you know, a a Harvard degree, too. But you talk about how this is all self-driven. I mean, it's not like your dad was some Ivy League type of person. You you really kind of had your eye on a prize. And you weren't maybe perhaps sure exactly what that prize was, but you saw the bow and you saw the package. You're like, I want that. Um, Okay, so tell me about the initial idea specifically behind Blue Mercury. Why makeup? Yeah, so, I mean, I think I was really, you know, I met my husband, Barry, who was a serial entrepreneur. And um, that was, uh, I had moved to DC after graduate school and I was in private equity buying companies. And I was buying companies in industries that I didn't think were interesting. So it was like office products and janitorial maintenance. And Woo, I'm excited. Uh, uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and here you had, in the back of my mind, Jeff Bezos and the internet and e-commerce was really exploding in 1999. That was the dot-com boom. 
And so my husband, Barry, was in my ear saying, you're in the wrong place. I was thinking I was completely missing out on the dot-com rush. And so, uh, you know, started to ideate about what I could bring to the e-commerce and dot-com boom. And I had always been a product junkie. I grew up um, in Oakland. There was a little shop in Berkeley called The Body Shop. Um, Oh, yeah. but not the body shop we all know. They, no. you know. It was a local body shop. They had sold their name ultimately to Anita Roddick of the body shop. And the shop made potions. And I was always, always fell in love with it. And I, I was a beauty junkie through and through. I knew every brand, every product. A lot of new brands came out of California back then. And when I moved east, um, it was hard to find the California brands. And so I took this idea of e-commerce with the hard to find brands and then married it with this idea that you could only buy cosmetics at drugstores and department stores back then. So thought about a third way. And the third way was beauty products on the internet. Now, I will say we were early and we were almost too early. Um, When we raised money for the company, uh, we raised a million dollars. Um, back then, it cost almost a million dollars to build a website. There was nothing off the shelf. It was all software development. We were all trying to make our way through this new industry. And so pretty early on, we realized we didn't have enough money. Um, so uh, that was when we pivoted pretty quickly into retail and doing retail. And the magic of that was there weren't freestanding beauty stores in 1999. You didn't have Ulta or Sephora. There was right, nothing right. but department stores or drug stores. And as a avid purchaser, I knew that in the department stores, everything was sold brand by brand behind glass counters. It was super uncomfortable if you look like you weren't going to spend money uh, to walk up to the counter and ask for help. It was super inefficient because if you wanted Lancome and you wanted Clinique, you had to start at Lancome, buy what you wanted, then go a couple steps over, start over with a new sales associate talk to her about what you wanted. And for someone like me who looked like I wasn't going to spend money and was young, um, it was a terrible customer experience. And so mm-hmm. we pivoted to stores because we realized that actually that was the biggest opportunity. E-commerce was a little early. No one was shopping online. We joked, we were all like buying from each other, right? I was buying from Amazon. Sure. Their team was buying from us. So we had, you know, one store in Washington, D.C., an internet site. And that was really the foundation for the growth of Blue Mercury. Where'd the name come from? We just made it up. I mean, I always loved the <laughs> color blue. I mean, you know, there was no Google search. You couldn't like tool around for ideas, right? Um, So I always loved the color blue. Wanted something fast and strong to go with it. And Barry uh, literally went to Barnes & Noble, went through a thesaurus and, you know, came up with the word Mercury as the god of communication. And at the core of who we are and what we do is really um, truthful, honest communication about beauty products. You just brought up. Barnes and Noble, you know, <laughs> hanging by a thread. It was so huge before Amazon. Things have changed so very much. So you're at the forefront there. And talk about the first retail, the first brick and mortar store, because you did the opposite. Most started brick and mortar and then flipped over to retail online. You did the opposite. Were you there? I mean, did you design it? How was that 
getting it up to and speed and running. Yeah. Yeah. So people joke that we were really, truly the first omni-channel retailer. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> and I actually coined the phrase at one point, you can dig deep on the internet and find it for clicks and bricks. Um, so, um, so the first store we actually bought, it was a gift store that was in tough financial shape. They had gifts and a couple beauty brands. Um, so um, bought that location. It was in prime real estate. So location matters, still does, um, in Georgetown on M Street. And we used all the existing fixtures. All we did was change the name. We had no money, right? We were you know, close to bankruptcy, honestly, at the beginning. So we just changed the name, put in new computer systems where we could track all of our customers. And literally, I worked this store um, for the first year. You know, My business school classmates used to tease me that all these fancy degrees and I was a retail shop owner. Um, and, but that's how I got to know the customers, what they wanted. Um, we designed sort of you know, how we work with our clients. We never force brands on them. It's really showing them three different products and asking their, diagnosing their needs. And we added a spa to the first location. And so all the innovation came from really working that first retail store and being sort of embedded with our customers early on. Um, And so I still have clients today that have known me, you know, since I worked that retail store, which is kind of funny. They say, I knew you when. You can't underestimate how important it is to really figuring out the business because at the beginning, you don't really have a business, you have an idea and your job the first year is to turn that into a business or a business model. And that takes a huge amount of effort. And this is where we get into the meat of what it means to succeed mm -hmm. and failure. Listen, that's, that's just an old cliche. Failure is part of success. Okay. We get it. But you just talked about how some of your Harvard friends or whatever were, were teasing you or saying, you know, oh, you're just a shop girl, you know, after all of this. You know, when I was researching you with my assistant, my now producer, Julie McGonigal, she pointed out that we had some things in common. You and I are both from California. We both went to UC Berkeley. And then I was like, well, the comparisons end there. She's like, you know, MBA and all of this stuff. And I got to tell you, I left, I'm from Beverly Hills, uh, and I, I left Beverly Hills to move to Columbus, Ohio for my first on-air local news job. And I remember seeing a guy from high school who was then an agent at CAA, the big creative artist agency at that point, and he said, hey, I heard you're moving to Ohio. Why would you do that? You know, you went to Berkeley, and I said, oh, you'll, you'll know soon enough. And I, I cringed a little, and then I was like, well screw you, you know, like, okay, I'm doing what my passion is, not just going for the money or going for the safety. It seems like our listeners need to hear from you that you did that. And I think that is really important. What kind of stumbling blocks did you encounter once you started in 1999, where you thought, I don't know if I'm going to make it? I mean, honestly, we spent all our money um, trying to build the website and then no customers came. And so mm. our choice was really to shut down the business or to try to figure out a new way. And so that experience of almost going bankrupt um, is incredibly painful. The sleepless nights, most, most entrepreneurs have those sleepless nights. I definitely had those. Um, 
And the idea to pivot to the store, you know, that wasn't a guaranteed success. In fact, most people thought we were crazy. Retail stores were out of favor because everybody wanted pure play internet businesses. So our investors thought we were crazy. Um, they said you never raise, we would never raise any more capital. And so I think it took a lot of fortitude to just get through those days um, and to say, no, we're, we're going to try this. The one thing I knew I wasn't going to do was just give up. And so I think as with any failure or near failure or whatever the situation is, the mental decision that you're going to keep going is the most important Um there's no silver bullet. There's no savior. Um, you just have to get up the next day and start plotting. Um, P-L-O-D-D-I-N-G, not T-T, um, <laughs> along. And I always, you know, even tell my kids this, if you don't know what to do or you're stuck or you're, you feel like you're failing, just do one thing, right? Just take one step. And so, you know, the store was the first step, but that was, we only got up to two stores after you know, a year. So it wasn't like we were going gangbusters then. Um, The one thing that benefited us is we had to drive for profit. So we knew we had gotten the message that we weren't going to be able to raise more money. And so we really focused on making a great business where we could make profit so that we weren't dependent on outside funds. So much of that, though, isn't that having to do with Uh, the experience in the store, but also the products themselves. And that leads me to makeup. My mother used to joke because I said, oh, Armani's coming out with a new makeup line. And she said, oh, please, darling, it's all coming out of the same vat in Syracuse. Um, That is an oversimplification, obviously. Testing and, and organics and all kinds of stuff go into each brand, depending on, on what they are. But how did you decide to curate brands that would speak to the customer you wanted? Yeah, I mean, so for us, um, founder-based brands were really important and actually still are today. So we actually partnered with entrepreneurs that had new brands, mainly also because the big guys wouldn't sell to us early on. So back then, there was this new set of independent beauty brands. So there's like- a brand called fresh. Um, and we worked with the founders, Lev and Alina. Um, Bliss um, was founded by Marcia Kilgore, um, you know, Trish McAvoy, Laura Mercier. These were all brands that were run by their founders. And so I think the greatest thing we were able to do was really help them achieve their dreams and communicate what was core to their brands while also um, introducing our clients to these new brands that had the heart and soul of founders in it. And so I think the drive towards finding independently entrepreneurial brands was really, really critical. Once we had those and had a bigger business, then, you know, the Lauder brands um, started working with us and L'Oreal and all the big companies. And in fact, Leonard Lauder was incredibly encouraging early on. Good. Um, but I think 
the merchandising was really about brands that had a point of difference and something unique to offer. We worked with Francois Nars um, of Nars. I mean, I'd laugh, um, you know, his office was literally like, you know, a hundred feet um, in size and he had two people that worked for him. And so those were the days of just really sort of the cottage industry of new brands in beauty and, um, and so they grew with us and we grew with them over time. Um, and I think that was core. I also think we were really strong in skincare and most department stores and drugstores were, were really strong in makeup. And so skincare and really advising people on how to solve their skincare problems was a critical piece of our business. So that um, advice driven business was a unique point sure. of difference also. This is Everyone Talks to Liz, and we'll be right back. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Every day to this day, even though you have sold Blue Mercury to Macy's, is that correct? Mm-hmm. 200 locations today. Unbelievable. But even today, you are obsessed with trying makeup, testing it out. What is your day like? Yeah. I mean, so over the years, we created two of our own uh, vegan and clinical brands, a makeup brand and a skincare brand, um, M621 and Luna and Astor. So a lot of times I will, I'll get up super early and run or walk. Um, so exercise is critical to me. Um, and then uh, I try to leave the morning for creative pursuit. So I may be trying a new skincare product or writing copy for a product or, you know, evaluating new brands that we want to carry or thinking through new strategies. Um, and, and I leave the afternoons Uh, for meetings, uh, whether it's with all of my team members, which are incredibly important to me. Um, You know, I may do a call with our field. So like tomorrow, we're launching a brand new product um, uh, for M61. And I have a call with our entire field team, uh, which is super fun, because especially with Zoom, I get to see everybody's faces. Um, And, you know, as a CEO and founder with the company so big now, I really see my role as sort of creative strategy, creative innovation, and then and the team building and keeping our culture, um, you know, keeping it the same as it was at the very beginning. Um, Marla, there are so many competitors out there uh, today. You guys have a huge foothold. But I think about, say, for example, Beauty Counter out of California, going big with a, a real message of clean beauty. And, you know, it's like... Uh, blood diamonds, you know, where, where you know that, that you can tell where it was sourced. 
and it's safe and it's fabulous, et cetera. Who do you view as a competitor in a way that you say, not so much, oh, I'm worried about them, but hey, we always have to be on our toes no matter what, because when you get to the top, that's when you got to be careful about being pushed off the pedestal. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're best when we're looking at um, where our customers are pushing us. Um, so it's easy to follow competitors, mm-hmm. right? Um, I think by the time you're looking at them and watching what they're doing, they're already executing their strategy where we've always prided ourselves on finding the next white space. Um, so we really look at what our customers want. Our competitors, of course, are other retailers where our customers can go e-commerce players, you know, direct brands. It's a huge market. But if we're doing our job, we are delivering expert customer service and we are finding the next category of brands. So, you know, wellness is becoming huge in beauty. It used to be beauty was very much more superficial or taking care of your skin or makeup. Now it's whole health, right? So supplements are a new category. Um, You're seeing, um, you know, all sorts of um, tools about how you take care of um, everything yourself since you can't go to the hair salon or go to a facialist, right? So there are so many new categories and beauty and our job is discovery. Um, so I think if we focus on listening to our consumers and finding the next founders, we do better than if we look at who our competitors are. It's so obvious you have such an incredibly strong creative spirit. The decision to sell to Macy's, some people would say, oh my God, I'm selling to a big name. I still want to run the company. They're going to put the thumb on me. You know, Warren Buffett famously says, I don't buy companies unless the founders or the owners want to continue to run it. I don't know anything about how to run a metal stamping company or or fruit of the loom. I want the people who are passionate about that business and who built it continue to run it. I just want to provide the capital and benefit from the cash flow, et cetera. Uh, How was it maneuvering that very sort of winding road when you're getting bought by a huge business like Macy's? I mean, I think it's about talking about what you want up front. And so, you know, Terry Longren was the CEO um, when Macy's acquired Mm -hmm. us. Um, And we had a lot of discussion about how to maintain the DNA of Blue Mercury to be able to grow the company aggressively while also leveraging the resources of a, you know, major retailer and e-commerce player. So we, you know, we had been growing aggressively, but felt like we wanted to step on the gas. And the challenge when you're growing too aggressively is you're building a company and functions that you, you know, you don't need to reinvent the wheel on. And so we were rebuilding our supply chain. We were, you know, upgrading our technology every year. You know, we were, you know, building our e-commerce site, um, you know, and so, and our, you know, all of our store systems. And so we were able to leverage all of the resources of Macy's on the back end, but keep our creativity and grow our creativity on the front end. I've spent a lot of time on finance and HR and all of these things that were best using my skills. And so, you know, they kept us in a separate division sort of like the Buffett model and just said, Hey, here are the guardrails now go. And we'll tell you if you're, you know, going outside the guardrails too much. And they really have stayed true to that over the years. And we grew from 68 locations to 200, you know, with this model. 
Um, and so it really um, held up over the years. In your experience, I know there are many different positions that you hire for, but is there one characteristic or two that you always look for in a prospective employee? I mean, I have a mental model that I use, which is skill, will, and fit. So do they have the skill to do the job or learn the job? Because I'm all about someone learning to do the job as provided mm. they have a foundation. Do they have the will? Do, you know, are they hungry? Do they want this role? Do they want to grow with our company? And then fit. And that's always the hardest one uh, because every company has their own DNA. And that fit piece is usually why people don't work out. And mm -hmm. so for us, we're looking at people who are scrappy, who like to do more with less, um, who are resourceful, um, who communicate well, and who are really honest. I mean, part of our DNA is being so honest with our clients and even and how we work together. We're super honest about you know, what's going well, what's not working. If something's not working, how do we fix it? And so that fit piece is the most important. So I think as people are looking at job opportunities or opportunities, really trying to understand that fit and whether you can envision yourself with the team and within the culture of that company is the most important. I got two questions that, that are related to the times that we are in right now. Obviously, the pandemic has been horrific for retail, not to mention a company where people are coming in, touching and trying cosmetics or getting a beauty service and people breathing over you. How has this affected uh, Blue Mercury? Yeah, I mean, I think I would say it's been the toughest year. In my 21 years of doing business, this has been one of the toughest. Mm. You know, I've never shut down 200 locations before, right? We went to, to zero stores open. Um, and I think, you know, one is, you know, keeping everyone inspired and motivated um, during the pandemic has been tricky. Two is making sure our customers are safe, but also feel safe, right, um, has been critical. I mean, to, to change in beauty and not be able to try on products in a store is sort of, you know, a complete um, 360 from what beauty in store has been all about. And then the third piece is to try to really keep innovation going. And so one thing that's fascinating is this um, new intimacy we have with our customers and our teams by using video conference and Zoom. I mean, those tools were always there, mm -hmm. right? Which is, you know, our customers could always FaceTime us and say, take us into their bathroom and say, you know, here are my products. What else do I need? Or this isn't working for me. Sure. But now we all have permission um, to share and to share um, our homes and that intimacy. And I think that is forever changing the, the, the relationship with our clients. They want us to zoom into them and, you know, they want online classes. So, so I think the future of retail and e-commerce is sort of how are you wrapping technology all together with your consumers and your teams to create more intimate relationships. And I think that's fascinating and intriguing and a, a challenge to rise to. And my second question is, is in a way indirectly related to the pandemic. A lot of people cannot afford college anymore. When you're looking at people to hire, is a college degree a deal breaker if they don't have it? 
No. Um, in fact, our human resource model has always been pretty radical, which is we are really happy training people and giving them a career path as long as there's a desire to learn. And so, you know, we have, um, you know, regional directors in our company that run big portion of the country and some of they're all promoted from within. Um, and mm. so some may have started on a store floor 10, 15 years ago, and now they're senior managers in the company. So, nice. you know, I think this desire to learn, and lifelong learning is a critical piece. Um, but I think, you know, there's so many different technologies and classes and ways to teach and learn now that we need to take advantage of that. I also think that someday we will figure out how to do, you know, what's called micro bachelor's degrees, you know, smaller, you know, shorter degrees, I like the technology is there. And maybe, you know, a couple micro bachelor's degrees add up to a different degree. But I, I just think we have to rethink higher education and um, rethink education in general. Everybody can be educated. Um, does everybody need a degree is the question. Well, yeah, there's a there's a whole movement on cutting a year off of the four year degree. It, it, I, I like this idea that you have of, of micro bachelor's degrees. Very interesting. Listen, as we wrap up here, you do have an audience that's listening that is thinking to themselves, how do I face what I've always wanted to do? Wrap my arms around it, bite into it and go for it. What is the number one piece of advice you have for people out there who are perhaps struggling or have a dream like you did of doing what you have done? And it's taken many, many years for you to do it. And as you said, you thought at one point you were going bankrupt. So folks, this is not an easy path as Marla has indicated, but give us one of your top secrets for success as being an entrepreneur. I mean, I, I think it's about taking a step in the direction of where you want to go, right? So, you know, if you have this dream of owning a restaurant, you know, can you start by doing a short blog on restaurants, right? So it gets you a step closer. I, I just think it's it's about um, getting closer, but not thinking I have to be at the end point right away. Um, it's everything's in stair steps. Um, and it's sort of like, you know, we always say, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? Just do one thing, <laughs> right? Um, that gets you toward, or do an informational interview with someone or, you know, take a step towards your dream, but you don't have to get there tomorrow. Um, but don't do nothing. Don't do nothing. You've got to move. As long as you're moving, you're succeeding, even if you're going backwards at certain points. Marla, what a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much for telling us this incredible story about Blue Mercury and how you started with an idea. You got that spark with hearing and keeping your world open to the universe of ideas like the Jeff Bezos speech when he wasn't Jeff Bezos. So thank you. And best of luck to you guys at Blue Mercury. Thank you, Liz. And and by the way, I'm doing my own makeup every day. Thank you very much during COVID, Monday through Friday. <laughs> see see how I'm doing here. I watched a few YouTube tutorials at the beginning of the pandemic. Oh my, the hardest is putting on fake eyelashes. I mean, my hands shake anyway, what the hell? So uh, check me out and then learn about your money too. Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern, a claim and countdown on the Fox Business Network. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.